I was thinking this uh, this last couple of weeks, um, and it was brought to my attention last night uh, when somebody very loudly and very insistently um, made sure that they said happy holidays to me and um, not Merry Christmas. And so I very loudly and assuredly replied back, uh, Merry Christmas to them. But I was thinking about that, and, and in my own mind, um, I've been reflecting, what would happen if Christmas were to disappear from our cultural world? What would be the impact if, if our world and our lives were not influenced by Christmas? Does it matter that we hang on and fight for this, uh, what we do in Bethlehem Walk and for what many of us do in our own personal lives? What would happen if what we fight for and make sure that people focus on the coming to earth of God in Christ Jesus if that were lost? I think we would lose more than we can ever imagine. Uh, we'll deal with a little bit more of that, but I just kind of wrote down three things uh, off the top of my head. I think one of the things, without Christmas, we are doomed to an endless restlessness. It was Augustine who wrote that the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That if God had never appeared to the earth, we would never have a solution for that restless, wandering soul that we have that is always saying, there's got to be something more. I was reflecting on it from the point of view of selfishness, that without Christmas, we are really trapped in a prison of selfishness. Probably about 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I was in um, uh, in Toronto, and uh, you get the Globe and Mail stuck in your door, and uh, I was reading it in the morning, and um, came across this article which said, when too much isn't enough. And I thought of the um, selfishness that we get imprisoned in when we don't have an outlet for serving and giving to others. I was also thinking that without Christmas, we have little that gives context and meaning to our lives. You know, there's a whole book of the Bible that is written to teach us and help us understand what life without God is like. There's a whole book of the Bible that is written from the viewpoint of a practical atheist, one who lives their life as though God didn't exist or God didn't interact with them, and it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you find one who makes all kinds of pursuits and enjoys all kinds of things and enjoys them to the absolute maximum that they can be enjoyed. But without God, the conclusion is, again and again, it is meaningless. It is empty. It is vanity. Loved ones, when we give up Christmas, if we don't guard the ground of Christmas we lose an incredible amount. I want to read Titus chapter 2, all of the, uh, all of the book, or all of the chapter. I'm only going to focus on a few verses uh, with us this morning, but I want to read all of the chapter because I think it gives a bit of a context uh, to, to what I'm going to say from uh, the last part of chapter 2. So chapter 2 of the book of Titus, it's near the end of the, the, the book. If you don't have a Bible, oh, we don't have them under the seats in front of you. Sorry. Um, if you don't have a Bible um, and you want one, we'll give you one on the way out. We have them. Um, usually they're under the seats. Um, so you can listen if you didn't bring one. But as for you, teach what, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likeness, or likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. 
And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything... They may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The chunk of scripture that I just want us to focus on this morning is from verse 11 to verse 14 because it focuses on two appearings of God, two appearings of Jesus Christ. You might have picked that up as I read it. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. Oh, that's a reference to Christmas. That's a reference to the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. And then the second one is in verse 13 where it says, For we are to await the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, to when he returns a second time to take us to be with him. The word that's used is the word appearing. Some of your Bibles might say manifestation. Some of them might say epiphany. It's actually from a Greek word, which is epiphany. And it means to the visible appearing of someone or something that was at one time invisible. It's the coming into view of something that was at one time concealed. It's illustrated well in, in, the, in the book of um, Acts. When Luke is telling us the story about Paul who had been on a ship. He had gone on a ship, they had taken off out of harbor, and they were uh, not long out of harbor, and they were caught up in a, just a terrible, vicious storm. And very quickly, you couldn't tell night from day because it was so black and so dark and the clouds were so thick and so heavy. And they, 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 they had been out in this storm for up to three days. And it says when a time came when neither the sun nor stars appeared, that's the same word here, for many days. Now, what's that telling us is that the sun and the, the, the stars weren't somehow created when all of a sudden there was no clouds. They were just hidden by the clouds. So in the same way, when Jesus Christ appears, that doesn't mean that that was when he first came into existence. He had always been, but the, the grace of God had been somewhat veiled. But in the birth of Jesus Christ, the glory and the grace of God appeared. And in the coming of Christ, we will see the full revelation of the glory of God. So it's this beautiful reminder that this wasn't something that was non-existent that comes into existence. But rather, the, the grace of God and the glory of God already exist. They are just made clear for us to finally see. I live in the news. And um, uh, fortunate, it's been, I think, almost seven years that there have been many deer that have appeared, but none of them on my grill. 
And they, it's not like they were invisible before. They're just hiding in the bush. And you drive down the road and then, bam, out of nowhere, this deer comes flying. It's not that it was created in that second. It just happened to appear. Uh, some of you have had car accidents and maybe on the report where you say, well, that car just appeared out of nowhere. Well, no, you just didn't see it for some reason. So just to make the point that, that the grace of God and the glory of God was preexistent before Jesus Christ came to earth the first time. The grace of God that appeared bringing salvation. That's the first point that I want to talk about because I think this illustrates why Christmas is so important. I have come to realize, I think, that we are not naturally gracious people. Grace is not something that is a naturally occurring human characteristic. It's something that is exotic to mankind. Grace is learnt. Grace is taught. And were it not for God demonstrating grace to us, we would know little, if nothing, about grace. When you think about that, if Christmas reveals grace... What would this world be like without grace? The text tells us here that the grace of God appeared. I've mentioned that a couple times. I'll just mention it once more. What that means is it's a metaphor for saying Jesus Christ appeared. God appeared in human flesh. So that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, I just want to remind you that the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ. It appeared. um, God's grace has always been part of this world. We talked about this about three or four weeks ago when we looked at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the fall. And in that first chapter, or that third chapter of Genesis, there are, are pictures of grace after grace after grace, even in the midst of God's pronouncement of judgment upon mankind. And we see woven throughout the Old Testament, again, pictures of grace again and again. But in the coming of Jesus Christ, and in fact, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says the fullness of grace appeared. And so that was manifest when Christ was born. What does grace mean? Have you ever tried to um, articulate grace or, or what it means? I, I don't think grace is something that is part of our normal conversation anymore unless somebody is called grace. And it's a beautiful name, but it's not something that we use very often in our conversation with one another. But I love what grace means. And in its most basic sense, grace means to show favor to those who don't deserve it. Now, I need grace. And we need to be gracious people. Can you imagine what one week would be like if we operated solely on the principle of grace? What would our marriages be like? To show grace to our spouse, even though they might not deserve it. To show grace to our children, even though they might not deserve it. To show grace to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's showing favor to those who don't deserve it. Somebody has tried to help us understand grace by this anacronym, and many of you are familiar with it, God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, I think that's a a great starting point, but it doesn't say enough. But if that's the only way that you remember grace, well, that's not a terrible position to be in. God's riches at Christ's expense. But I I think we want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, One man has written that grace is God's unmerited favor. 
So there it is again, it's that notion that grace is something we don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor. A.W. Tozer expanded on that definition by saying grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. I like that a little bit more. Because that tells me that grace is what motivates God to be good to me, even when I don't deserve it. So I think that helps us a little bit more. But why are we undeserving? When we think about mankind, what makes mankind undeserving of God's grace? Well, in a nutshell, sin. Because we have offended God. We have broken God's laws. We have disobeyed Him. We have rebelled against Him. As the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we don't deserve favor. We don't deserve kindness. What we deserve is punishment. When you get a ticket, you don't deserve favor. You don't deserve kindness. You expect to pay the ticket. Well, in a much greater way, there is a cost for our sin. So when it says that grace is God's unmerited favor to the undeserving, in a biblical context, it means that God is gracious to us who have offended him by our sin, and yet he still pours grace upon us even though we are undeserving of it. Grace lies at the very close to the heart of Christianity. And I think, loved ones, that grace is one of the major themes of Christmas. If you suppress Christmas, if you get rid of Christmas... Where is the model of grace? Where is the example of grace by which all of our lives are transformed for the better? When we read then that the grace of God appeared, we are told something extraordinary about the character of God. Because he says there, the grace of God appeared bringing salvation to all men. I love that too. We, We could maybe say that the saving grace of God appeared for all mankind, or as some versions say, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And we say, well, what do we mean by salvation? Some of you maybe have been coming to church only for a couple of weeks, so this might be your first Sunday here, and you say, well, I, I've heard this, that people need to be saved, but I don't really have a clue what that means. Well, let me try and at least give you a little bit of picture about it. It's a terrible analogy, but maybe it helps just a little bit. We've got Mount Washington, and, and um, uh, a lot of people go out there hiking, a lot of people go there skiing, although there's nobody skiing there right now, I understand, because they don't have much snow. But there's always these groups of people, or one or two people, that, that think there are better trails and there are better terrain and outside of the boundaries. And so they go underneath the boundary markers or they go past the signs that say don't go beyond this point. And they're often unprepared. They don't have the right clothing. They don't have the right food. They don't have the right provisions. They don't have a compass. They don't have a map. And they leave the confines of the safety of the boundaries of the mountain and they wander off. If you do that, within two or three days, you can be in big trouble particularly if the temperatures begin to go down. You have no hope of salvation. You have no hope of deliverance. You are stuck, you are lost, and you are in great danger of losing your life. Yet there are what we call our search and rescue people. I am so thankful for the search and rescue. I'm so thankful for the RCMP, for these people that come after us when we do things that are a little bit silly. But the search and rescue get a call that somebody hasn't come home for three days and we know they're up in the mountain. So these men and women, all hours of the night and morning, they get gear on and they, they head out and they start looking for you. And most cases, they find the people. 
And we could almost say that the search and rescue team is grace appearing. Because we could say that it is grace given to those who don't deserve it because they have left the boundaries for which they were supposed to stay. And so in a much greater way, when we have sinned, we have, we have gone outside the boundaries of God's way for our life. There is nothing that we can do to find our way back. There is nobody that can do anything to help us. But it says that the grace of God, God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, Jesus Christ is our rescuer. Without Christmas, we have no rescue from our perilous situation. The Bible is very clear. There there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We know so well, do we not? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not suffer um, or would not perish, but they would have everlasting life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Oh, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all mankind. So Christmas is the start of the greatest, or not the start, but it's maybe the culmination of the greatest rescue plan ever devised for mankind. You get rid of Christmas, and there is no rescue plan for those of us who have gone outside the boundaries that God has set for us. Grace offers us a fresh start. Grace never asks you to go back in time and undo what can't be undone. Grace calls you to trust Christ as the one who is what you are not, the one who did what you could not do, and the one who will help you become what you could never become on your own. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all mankind. The second point that we see here, it's rather extraordinary as well. It's the grace of God that teaches us how to live. I think it was Pastor Barry's first sermon here where he talked about this particular concept in this particular verse. I'm going to say things a little bit different than he did, but it's, it's, it's an impactful passage. And the, the reality of what he's saying there is that when you are rescued by God, your life will never be the same. I, I dare say that anybody who has ever been rescued by a search and rescue team or saved from drowning, you will never swim quite the same way. Or you will never think um, quickly about going out of bounds after you've experienced that fear of what it means. And you will think a little bit more carefully about staying in the boundaries. Well, in the same way, when one experiences the grace of God, we want to stay within the guidelines that God has set for us. That grace teaches us how to live. It's not that we live in order to inherit that grace or receive that grace. Rather, we live in a certain way to respond to the grace. And as we think about it then, we we think about it in in the sense of both negative and, and positive. In most of life, there are things that you have to learn not to do and things that you need to learn to do. That's just the way that life goes. And so that's the same with the Christian walk. And he starts here, first of all, that the grace of God teaches us to deny certain things. To die means just say no. Wasn't there, what was, there, there was that, no, just say no to drugs. I think that was the campaign. Just say no. Well, in the Christian life, we are to just say no to a few things. And he lists two of them for us. He says there in verse uh, 13, just say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. 
That's the author's way of saying, um, uh, basically encompassing anything that is offensive to God and is only natural in its, um, uh, it's only earthly in its perspective. Ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Well, ungodliness is anything that has to do with keeping God out of our lives or our actions. It's living as though God doesn't exist or God doesn't care or God doesn't see what we do. It's living in a way and doing things that are anti-God or that are opposed to God. In order to understand, though, godliness, we need to believe that there is a God, that that he has spoken and that we are to listen to him. I think it might help us to think of ungodliness in terms of sin. So, for for instance, to steal is ungodly. If you are consistently late by 10 or 15 minutes to work, you are stealing from your employer. That's ungodliness. That's ignoring God's desire that we not steal from others. To gossip is ungodly. When we speak evil of people and when we undermine their reputations and we tell stories out of turn, we are doing what God says not to do, and that is ungodly behavior. When we hate another person, that is ungodly. Because God tells us that we are even to love our enemies. And so when we think of ungodliness in terms of sin, I think we understand that ungodliness is behavior and actions that is offensive to God. And so what he's saying is, I want you to start living as though God sees and knows everything. We have really ruined, I think, one of the most um, important characteristics of God with one of our Christmas songs. Um, he knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Santa Claus doesn't know that stuff. But God does. And so when we live uh, for God, we are to get rid of ungodliness and live as though God is aware of everything that we say and do and think when we're awake and when we're asleep. He also says get rid of worldly passions. I think worldly passions for me is just, it's the focus on life here. The apostle would say um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It's living as though there is no eternity. It's living though as, it's living as though the flesh is all that matters. So all that matters is that I feel good, that I look good, that I eat well, that I have a lot saved up for a long retirement, that that's all that matters. And so he says, no, say no to worldly passions. In other words, recognize that there is more to life than meets the eye. That's the negative. The grace of God appeared teaching us then to get rid of ungodliness and worldly passions. Again, you think, if we get rid of Christmas, what teaches us that we ought not live for ourselves? That we ought not live as though there is no God? The positive, I think, is very helpful. And in various places in Scripture, and you can go in a lot of different places in Scripture and find a lot of summaries of the Christian life. Uh, I know that Mike is working on discipleship and coming up with a great summary of discipleship. And there's lots of places in Scripture that you can understand, well, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does our life look like? Well, he gives three words here that I think if those were the only three words that we knew, they would be sufficient for us to live a life that was pleasing to God. 
So he says then to them, and you can see them in your Bibles if you have them, in verse um, uh, 12, that we are to live self-controlled. That's the first one, to live self-controlled. Now, I read all of chapter 2 because if you were listening, I tried to just emphasize the the times that self-control is mentioned. It's mentioned in verse 2, older men are to be self-controlled. It's alluded to in verse 3 where older women are to be reverent in their behavior. It's clearly stated in verse 5 where young women are to be self-controlled. It's clearly stated in verse 6 where young men are to be self-controlled. And then it's clearly stated again in verse 12 that we are to be self-controlled. What does that mean? That just means that we rein ourselves in. That, 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 that just because something might look good or just because something might be appealing or just because we might want something doesn't mean that we can have it or doesn't mean that we should do it or doesn't mean that we should do it for as long as we want. And self-control is part of the Christian life is learning to rein myself in. It's learning to check myself. It's learning to, to look at all my recreational activities and seeing, okay, what's good and what's out of control? It's learning to look at my eating and drinking habits and saying, well, what's good and what's out of control? It's learning to look at my looks and appearance and, okay, what's good and what's out of control? It's learning to look at the, the world and what's around it and all that can occupy me and say, what's good and what's out of control? It's learning to say, where does God fit in my life? Where do the people of God fit in my life? Where does prayer and Bible reading fit in my life? In other words, self-control is the work that we put into shaping our lives so that we live for God and not for ourselves. The second word that he uses there is an upright life. If self-control refers to controlling myself, an upright, upright life, I believe, refers to our relations with one another. Do you know that it matters how we interact with one another? That we have, we have ten commandments and at least five of them refer to our relationships with one another. Remember what, what Jesus says when, when the guy asked him, what's the summary of the law? He says, well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. So think about that. Uh, the commandment to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why is that important? Well, because even on the Sabbath, they were to give their workers a rest, to give their animals a rest. Because they were to think not only of their own needs of making money or their own needs of bringing in the harvest, but they were to think of the needs of their workers and their animals for rest. We think of the commandment, honor your father and mother. Oh, how much more peace there would be in our world if children and older adults were honoring of their parents, treated them with respect doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they've done or did to you. But there is a certain amount of honor and respect that we are told to show for our parents. What about not murdering? There's maybe not many of us that have not physically killed somebody. But how many of us have emotionally and mentally killed somebody? I'll never talk to that person again. Oh, aren't our actions to be characterized by love? What about do not commit adultery? Do not lie. Do not covet. Those are meant so that we learn how to relate to one another. And as the final, it's the royal law in Scripture says, if you would really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so there's this beautiful relationship that we start to understand as the grace of God takes over our life that we begin to say, I'm not going to do that to that person because that will hurt them. That will harm them. I'm going to try and live an upright life. And then the final word that he uses is the grace of God teaches us to live in, in, um, uh, live a godly life. That simply is, uh, simply, that's a huge one. But that is a reference to how we live our lives before God. We just read in, in Thessalonians liberally, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. This is God's will for you that you be thankful. And so, do you see there in those three words, we have the whole of our lives encompassed. Self-control, how I manage my own life. Um, uh, uh, upright behavior, how I interact with you and how you interact with me. A godly life, how I interact with God. And then finally, and again, just, just to keep on the theme, if we give up Christmas, what teaches us morality? It would be like the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The final point is simply this, the third one. The grace of God is our blessed hope. This is really where this whole sort of series was coming. We wanted to talk about the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first coming of Christ is one of grace and one of humility. Oh, but the second coming is one of glory. You can just go back and read the text. I'll read a couple of from you. When the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the angels with Him, or and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Like there, when Christ comes back the second time, it is going to blow us away. It says in Revelation that every eye will see him. I don't exactly know how that will take place. But when God comes back, there is going to be no hiding behind human flesh. That we are going to see him in all his power, in all his might, in all his radiance, in all his purity, in all his holiness, in all his righteousness. It is going to be this glorious appearing. And it's the grace of God that teaches us to hope for that or to look for that. There's five words in in here that have changed my life. And I know for many here it has changed your life. When you come to understand these words, if you've never heard them before, never thought they can change your life, and it's simply these, he gave himself for us. In the midst of his first coming and his second coming, it is characterized by the amazing self-sacrifice of God for us. He gave himself. That's extraordinary, isn't it? We didn't deserve it. We had walked away from him. We wanted nothing to do with him. And yet he said, I'm going to go get them. I'm going to rescue them. And he gave himself for us. There's a song. You know, there's so many songs that I guess we just don't have time to sing anymore. What wondrous love. What wondrous love that God should love a sinner such as I. How wonderful his love for me. That's all encapsulated in that he gave himself for us. That's a reference to substitution. God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. He paid the penalty of my sins. He died in my place. He bore the wrath of God upon himself so that I could receive grace and mercy. And then the last things, two things that are the response of that. He gave himself for us to do two things, beautiful things, to redeem us. 
We have a very hard time understanding redemption nowadays because it's, it's not part of our culture. But the world in which, uh, in, in the first century, slavery was common. And often when you were bought as a slave, you were a slave for the rest of your life. You would never come close to earning enough money to ever buy your freedom. And so it was an amazing day when somebody would rock into the slave market and say, Paul, I want that slave, and here's the money for him, and he's now going to become my buddy. And they would pay the price to redeem me. Well, that's what Jesus has done for all who will put their faith and trust in him. All of us are slaves to sin. We don't talk about that very much, but there's all stuff in our life that we think we've got control over, but we know it controls us. We're slaves. And Jesus says, if you will put my faith and trust or your faith and trust in me, I will redeem you. I will free you from your slavery. That's a beautiful picture of freedom. The second one is a picture of purification. It it, it says that he gave himself to cleanse us or to purify us. I've been reflecting on this one, I think, a little bit more over Christmas than some of the other things that I've been thinking about. I don't know. I'm just becoming maybe to appreciate it more in my own life. Many of you know what it's like to get dirty. Some of you have jobs that require you to get dirty. You work in mills or you, you're plumbers or carpenters or you're gardeners. And you, you go out and after eight or eight, eight, eight hours, nine hours, um, you are dirty. Some of them are in sports, and you play sports, and you sweat, and, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're sweaty, and you're smelly, and, and you just need to be clean. And so what do you do? Well, you jump in the shower, you jump in the bath, you get the soap out, you scrub yourself off, and you're clean. How do you clean your heart? How do you clean your soul? I've talked with people who have either done horrible things or have horrible things done to them, and they've gone into the shower and for hours they've tried to wash themselves clean. And they can't. There's no soap, human soap, that is able to wash my heart. That's able to wash my soul. David understood that when he sinned so greatly and he says, oh God, wash me from my sin. Cleanse me from my iniquity. A little bit later he says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. See, there's a cleansing that comes from the blood of Jesus that is unlike any cleansing you will ever know. And it is able to purify your conscience, to purify your heart, and to make you clean on the inside. We sing that song, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is that flow that made me white as snow. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to to redeem us and to cleanse us, to wipe us clean. If you get rid of Christmas, loved ones, what hope do we have for getting our heart washed? What what, what, What else out there can cleanse that conscience? Oh, we need to fight for the wonderful historical reality that the grace of God appeared. And we need to remind people to be ready for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior when he comes again. It's a beautiful truth. Reflect on grace throughout this day and maybe through this week. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, just just revel in God's grace to you. If you don't know him, I implore you. 
as Paul says, I beg you, come to Christ. Let him buy your freedom. Let him cleanse your heart. And you will know a Christmas like you've never known before.